Open your Bibles, if you have them, to Psalm 19, where we're going to be this morning. Psalm 19. Psalm 19. While you're turning there, I'll say uh, this is the second to the last week we're going to be in Psalms. We'll, we'll finish up with Psalm 20 next week. Um, my plan as of right now, now I say that with quotes because 2020 has forever changed the idea of the word plan for me, but the tentative, very tentative plan right now is every summer to spend 10 weeks in the Psalms. So next summer we'll go 21 to 30. Um, again, the plan, all right? So don't hold me to that, but that's, that's the idea right now, and so that'll be going on for hopefully some years into the future through Psalm 150 uh, eventually. Um, but for now, we're going to be in Psalm 19 this morning. Uh, I grew up a city kid. Now, I would have probably told you back when I was growing up that I, would, I, that I was living in the country. We were just on the outside of the city limits in a little bitty town called Corsicana, Texas, which was about 60 miles south of Dallas. And I thought I lived in the country, but I didn't live in the country. My wife grew up on a ranch. She lived out in the country. I didn't live out in the country, but I thought I did. And in fact, as I would uh, gaze up at the sky at night, I would see tons of stars, the Big Dipper, the Little Dipper, all the constellations and things like that. It was relatively bright out where I was. And then when I got older, I went to a place called Big Bend, Texas, which is a national park on the Big Bend in the Rio Grande, right on the border of Texas and Mexico. And when we were out there, one of the first couple of days we were out there, we went on a desert hike and we got out into the middle of the desert and we just set our camp out on a plateau, just no tent, just a, basically a mat on top of this plateau and looked up at the sky. I only thought I had grown up seeing the stars. And then you see stars inside the stars, right? You see constellations inside the constellations. There's Every square inch of the sky is covered. And as you're laying there, you can see satellites slowly passing over the earth every once in a while on a regular pattern. You could see forever in the night across Mexico, and you could see the little, uh, the little villages with Christmas lights strewn up in Mexico. And as you look up, it's just stars as far as you can see, the Milky Way galaxy and all kinds of things. And what I realized then is that the lights of the city, no matter how big that city is, the lights of the city tend to obscure the magnitude of the night sky. Just what is really up there. David doesn't have that problem. He has no electricity. So the night sky to him is just like it is, or much like it is, in Big Ben, Texas. And David, in our psalm this morning, is rejoicing that the Lord has revealed himself in the night sky that he is seeing, in the daytime sky that we all can see, and in the word that is before him. But then at the end of our psalm, we're going to see that David's going to conclude something. That those things actually mean something for us. They say something to us. Let's look in our text, Psalm 19, to the choir master. A psalm of David. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, 
nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sin. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray for the word that we have just read, that you would help it to seep into our pores, that you would help it to make sense to us, that you would allow us to understand the word clearly, that we might apply it to our lives, that we might leave here different, having encountered you through your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this psalm leads, it needs a little in the way of, of introduction because so many of you will be familiar with the way it opens. That first verse, it was probably a memory verse for you when you were a kid, if you grew up in church. The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky, or the King James says, the firmament sheweth his handiwork. Uh, the sky proclaims his handiwork. You know, much like Psalm 18, which we looked at last week, Psalm 19 is also a psalm of praise. However, Psalm 18, you'll notice there's just a little bit of difference in that it begins with an address to God. David says there in Psalm 18, I love you, O Lord, my strength. So he begins with an address to God, and then he continues the rest of Psalm 18 with an address to the reader. But Psalm 19 is a little bit different in that he begins with an address to the reader or to the congregation that's gathered, and then in the end, he is going to address God. Now, this psalm is famous for the confidence that David presents for the existence of an all-powerful creator who created the heavens and the earth from absolutely nothing. Now, many of you will remember maybe uh, evangelism explosion that was some years ago created by the late D. James Kennedy. Evangelism explosion, if you haven't heard of it, if that's the first time you've ever heard it, I can almost promise you you've heard its two principal questions. They would ask two diagnostic questions to anybody who was categorized as a non-believer, an unbeliever. They would ask two questions 
and you've probably heard them. The first one is, have you come to a place in your spiritual life where you can say for certain that if you were to die today, you would go to heaven? You've heard that question asked. It was evangelism explosion that sort of brought that question to bear. The second one was, suppose that you were to die today to stand before God and He were to say to you, why should I let you into my heaven? What would you say? Those two questions were the beginning of evangel- uh, evangelism explosion. You would approach somebody, you would ask them those two questions, that would begin the conversation of evangelism. Now this psalm might be David's response to the person who would answer those questions with something like, I'm not certain that heaven or hell is where I will go when I die. And I doubt very seriously that I will meet someone or anyone who will pose to me such a question. Psalm 19 has been used that way in the past as an apologetic. See here, the Bible says... God created this, and the heavens declare the glory of God. He created the the world and everything in it. And that's true. But Psalm 19 is also much, much more than that. In fact, Psalm 19 should punch us in the chest. Christian and non-Christian alike. Psalm 19 should confront head on. Because what David is going to say in this psalm is he's going to magnify the truth of God that is made known to us in two glorious ways through creation and through His Word. But then he's going to turn it on us at the very end and tell us what that means for us. That it actually means something for you, Christian. This is not just for the atheist out there. This is for you also. So first we're going to see in David's psalm that the truth of God is made known in creation. Very basic. The truth of God is made known in creation. You'll notice that the first six verses, David here is talking about everything in the heavens. Specifically, he mentions the sun and the stars that... That's mostly what he means when he says the heavens declare the glory of God. He's talking about the stars in the night sky. And then in the second half, he mentions specifically the sun, which has its place. But, so whether it's day or whether it's night, the heavens are screaming out the glory of God. They're worshiping Him, is what he means. The way he describes it here is using what we call anthropomorphic language. The heavens are speaking. The inanimate object of the heavens are speaking. They're proclaiming. The sun speaks. The night reveals knowledge, which is another way of saying the night speaks. Now imagine, just for a second, take yourself back 3,000 years before electricity. Imagine for just a second there were no moon and stars in the sky. When the earth turns its back on the sun, you are in complete pitch black. You would have no way of knowing just how deep the universe is. But when the night sky is lit up by stars, David is pointing out, look how vast this is. Day and night It screams that we were created. 
It screams that there is a creator. It screams that we were made. But the purpose of it all, he tells us in verses 3 and 4, he says, There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, their words to the end of the world. In other words, David is, is making his claim that these celestial bodies, sun, moon, and stars, are felt and perceived by everyone. He says there's nothing, when he's talking about the sun, there's, in verse 6, there's nothing hidden from its heat. Nothing on earth can escape the cry of the celestial bodies screaming that God is real. What David is describing here is what we would usually call God's general revelation. It means that God has made Himself known to humanity generally. He has put it out there. He hasn't hidden Himself. He's made Himself known to humanity generally. And every rational human is capable of seeing the world around him and knowing that he or she is not alone and that he or she is made. Look, even secularists know this. Even secularists know this. This is why they search for aliens. Right? Not to put too fine a point on it, but that is exactly why the search for aliens extraterrestrial life is there because we're looking at the expanse of the universe and going, there is no way we are alone. Right? So that's the same feeling that God has revealed to everyone is that in fact you are not alone. That is right. You are not alone. It's similar to the observation that Paul makes in Romans 1, 18 to 20, where he says this, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. So right out of the gate in verse 1 here though, David says that these are declaring the glory of God. So for the verse 6 verses are incredibly countercultural to both David's day and to our day. David is declaring that not only are these heavenly bodies out there and not only are they made, which most people in his day and age would agree to, Yes, they're made. But what he is going one step further and he's saying they were made by the one true and living God and they are screaming out his name. They're not made by a pantheon of deities. They are declaring his glory and pointing you in that direction as well. So in David's day and age and to some extent ours, many would see the sun, moon, and stars and even the rest of the created order, animals and things like that, and they would bow down and worship them in some form or fashion. Sun worship is probably the oldest form of worship. They see the sun in the sky and they bow down and worship it. And in our present day, we see nature worship, which is present in a lot of Eastern religions, reflecting that same idea 
But in America, you'll find it pretty prevalent in things like astrology, where people are convinced that the order of the stars when they were born, has some governing authority over their personality. Many Christians will even ask you what your sign is. I've been asked that before by Christians. Many Christians will know what their sign is, as if the sun, moon, and stars and the movement therein controls something about how they respond, or perhaps it's an excuse for why they respond the way that they do sometimes. Oh, well, I'm this or I'm that. Yoga where the poses in yoga, like the warrior poses, maybe you didn't know this, maybe you do, are celebrating the stories or rehearsing the stories of the celestial deities as they got their origin, the warrior poses in yoga, or the sun salutations, or the many different poses in yoga are all celebrating the backstory of Hindu gods. In some capacity. So I'm just going to leave that there and we'll move on. Uh, talk about it the rest of it another day. In our day and age, just as prevalent to the worship of these solar deities or these celestial deities is the explaining away of these things as if they just came from nothing. They were just bang, there. The question of the origins of the sun, moon, and stars is so-called settled science in our day. This is what it is. There is no question about it. It's settled science. So tell the average astronomer in the universities, there are some exceptions, but tell the average astronomer in the universities that these celestial bodies that you're looking at through your telescope were not only created by God, but are actually singing praises to His name and you will be laughed at and called a kooky Christian wacko. The point is that though the world is all able to look at the created majesty of the universe and through general revelation, can see that we are not alone, general revelation is incapable of producing true God-worshippers. The created order is insufficient, as Paul has said, to remove, sorry, it is sufficient to remove any excuse that anyone may have for not worshiping God. Yet it stops short of them understanding, having, or coming to a saving knowledge of the truth. However, for those who are true and genuine worshipers of God, David is unmistakably clear that our awe of the universe should bubble up in praise to the God who created it. Never should the Christian admire the universe as an end in and of itself, but the admiration for the complexities of the galaxies should lead us to the praise and worship of the creator of those galaxies. So then, how does one come to a deeper understanding of God so that he or she might be saved, which is the second point that David makes here. The truth of God is made known in His Word. The specific knowledge, the truth of God is made known to us 
in his word. So David shifts from talking about the general truth of God made known to humanity in the created order, in the sun, moon, and stars, to the specific way that God makes himself known to humanity through his word. Notice the terms that he uses here in 7 to 11, in the second stanza there, where he says, law and testimony. The law and and testimony are terms for God's revealed will. Probably since David's focus is on the first five books of the Old Testament, that's probably where David has his mind on. That's really all he has access to. Paul, though, is going to tell us that the whole Old Testament and New Testament would fall into that category as well. It revives the soul and it makes wise the simple, David says in verse 7. His precepts and commandments, again, revealed in scriptures, they rejoice, uh, they, they rejoice in the heart, they are pure, they enlighten the eyes, he says in verse 8. Rules or judgments, he says, are true and righteous These would be like uh, God's record, his thoughts on things. He's saying that the, the Word of God, the Bible, if you will, in a New Testament context, records not only the fact that God made us, not only who he is, what his nature is, but also what he thinks about the activities of humanity. Consider for just a moment what life would be like without a written record of God's revealed will. You look up at the sun, moon, and stars. You look at everything around you, and you may think to yourself, I'm convinced someone or something created us, but I don't know where to go from here. David is transitioning us from God's transcendent and powerful nature to a God who is simultaneously close and personal. Who has not only told you in creation that He created you, but He has cared enough about you to reveal His purposes to you in His Word. Rolf Jacobson puts it like this, in creation, the Creator comes to us hidden, wearing nature as a mask. In the Word, the Lord comes to us personally. Here we meet a God who is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, showing faithfulness to the thousandth generation. Imagine what society would be like without God revealing Himself in His Word. It would be like a lot of other pagan religions that come to the conclusion when it doesn't rain for a little while, He hates us. And he's going to kill us. But God tells us he's loving, he's compassionate, he's kind, he's slow to anger, and he's abounding in steadfast love. Look at how David concludes his second stanza in verse 10. He says, More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. It's not just that the Bible, the very words of God, it's not just that they're true and right and revealing of God's nature. David says, it's that they're good. That they're good. 
that they're to be desired, that they're better than honey or the drippings of the honeycomb, meaning that the very source of the words of God is sweeter than the source of the sweetest delicacy there is. Remember, there's no pure cane sugar in David's age. This is the sweetest delicacy they know is honey dripping straight from the honeycomb. It's the sweetest thing that could possibly be conceived of. It would be like us saying, God's word is better than bluebell ice cream. And bluebell ice cream is it's the best there is, right? We're all in agreement on that, surely. Okay, good, good. You scared me for a second. You see what David is saying? He's saying that the reading of the word of God, in, in reading it, there is more joy in God's word that will be kindled in the heart of of a believer. This is where the joy is found for the heart of a believer. This is where it's kindled, is in the Word of God. It cannot be kindled another way. You can't set your heart afire for the love of God without giving yourself to the reading of the Word of God. Often you'll hear the Bible called an instruction manual for life. You've heard this term before or this phrase said about the Bible? It's it's an instruction manual for life. And true enough, it's true and right, and it should point you in the right direction, right? It, It won't lead you into falsehood as any good instruction manual would. Although if you've ever read an instruction manual, sometimes it can often steer you astray. But nevertheless, the intent is it points you in the right direction. And that's true. It's not going to lead you into error. But describing it merely as an instruction manual sells the Bible woefully short. Because that's not really how the Bible describes itself. The Bible really describes itself as something that sets the reader on fire for the Lord. That kindles his heart For joy in the Lord that leads him in obedience, that trains him in righteousness, that produces a desire for the Lord. Not just points him in the right direction, but actually sets something on fire. It's better than bluebell ice cream. I can't think of one instruction manual out there that's better than bluebell ice cream. And only in them will the believer's heart be kindled for a delight for the creator of the universe. At this very moment, in countless pews around the world, there are Christians, people, sitting in those pews who are absolutely bored to tears. Perhaps even in this very room. And they'll tell themselves that the reason that they're bored is because the music's too slow and boring or it's too fast and I can't follow, I don't know the words, or the person is slow on the transition or too quick on the transition or this or that. They'll tell themselves that the preacher is too dry, he's too slow, he's too deep, he's too shallow. They'll tell themselves that it's this instrument or that instrument. You know what? I would, what, it would change everything. If they had a choir. If they had a choir, it would change everything. You know what would be better? If they got rid of that choir and they put a guitar player up there, that would that'd make everything much better. 
Then I, then I could keep up. I could follow along. What if I told you that the biggest problem in your struggle for, commit, for, for contentment and for joy is you? We keep thinking that if I had this or that, I would be content. We don't just do that in our church services, with our churches. We do that in our regular life too, right? If I only had this thing. And we don't say it in those words. And I'm guilty of it too. We save up everything we've got and we're like, okay, that's what I'm saving towards. That's what I want. And then it's on to the next thing. I'm saving up because I really want this. And what we're really saying is that if I had this or that, then I would be happy. But actually, growing in your relationship with the Lord through His Word causes the competing joys of everything else in this life to completely dissipate. David says in verse 10, more to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. It's better than money. It's better than wealth. For a person in his situation, in every situation, what is to be desired more than money? It provides everything for you. And David is at the top of the known world at the time, and he's saying the word of God is better than all that. If he's putting gold in that category, everything else would be in that category. It makes all the joys of everything else that can be contained in life dissipate. Nothing's worth more than that. The struggle to find contentment in our world reveals so much about us. Is it a shocker that the culture who is the most distant from the Bible, who has more translations at their fingertips than anyone else, reads it less than any culture that's ever lived? And we can't find contentment? Is that a shocker? It's not. Because all the things in our life that promise contentment don't end up fulfilling. They're cotton candy. They just dissipate. Struggle to find contentment reveals that we haven't actually found the source of contentment. The source of of joy. And David is saying in this whole psalm that the Lord is the source of joy and he's made he's made himself known to you. You can know him. You can experience that kind of joy too, but it is only available through his word. That's it. You can't get it any other way. But there are no shortcuts. That may be the bad news. There are no shortcuts. This is the difficulty in counseling someone who's been, through, been struggling with 
same sins over and over and just cannot seem to get past them. They're an addiction to this person and it, and it won't go away and it just continues to destroy their relationships, either their marriage, their friendships, or, what, or whatnot. And it could be anything. Uh, it could be gossip, could be slander, could be a number of different things that they're struggling with, could be marital strife that they're struggling with, ever present in the lives of many in congregations around the world, and I'm sure ours as well, uh, particularly in the Western world, is pornography. Probably the, the one thing that I see more than anything else as a pastor is this struggle over an addiction, both men and women being plagued by it, and the difficulty in helping people see their sin and this addictive sin struggle that they have is helping them see that it's not actually a problem of choices. You would, you would think that's what it is, that it's a problem of choices. That if you just choose better, well, you come to that fork in the road, you're either sitting there at the computer or you're sitting there with that gossipy friend, you come to that fork in the road, just don't choose that. Choose something different. That's what you want to say. Because that's what we think in our minds that it is, and it's difficult to help us see that it's not a problem of choices. It's actually a problem of joy. It's a problem of contentment. It's a problem of deep-seated satisfaction and happiness in the will of God. Because the reality is, we choose, nearly always, we choose that which makes us most happy. When we come to that fork in the road, the problem is not that they don't know what choice they should choose. The problem is they don't desire to choose anything but. It's a desire problem. It's deep in the heart. And what David is saying here, and by the way, that's not a bad thing. God has wired us to choose that which makes us most happy. But what David is saying here, and what the whole Bible is really arguing in one way or another, it's that God will make you most happy. God is the only thing that satisfies. He's it. And there's only one way to Him. There's only one way to grow in understanding. And in this psalm, David is saying His word the Bible, the very words of this God, when they fill your life, when you drink them in, you'll desire them more than gold, even much more than fine gold, because in them you will grow in the knowledge and wisdom of the Lord. That's what he says right before it, right? You'll know his precepts, his commandments. You will grow in the fear of him. The word is the kindling of the fire of superior joy. Period. But there is where the difficulty lies in someone who's struggling mightily with addiction or sin of any kind. Appetite to read the Word is low. A desire to read the Word, appetite for the things of God is just is missing. It's not there. And they... 
say things like, I just want to fix my marriage, or I just want to fix this issue right here. I just want to address these particular things. I just want to fix this problem of my friendship, or I just want to grow spiritually, and they don't see how the daily reading of God's Word actually produces that. They say to themselves, or they may think to themselves, I get it, I came to a pastor, he's going to tell me to read the Bible, okay, I'm going to have to endure that part of it, I get that, I understand, yeah, 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 I need to read the Bible, but Tell me, how do I fix my marriage? Give me, give me some practical steps to how I fix my marriage. But what David is saying is that the word first kindles the joy for the Lord. It starts this fire of joy for the Lord. And then that desire for the Lord has the effect of sanctifying that believer in righteousness. Well, then righteousness in the life of the husband or the wife ends up producing the godly marriage or the godly fill-in-the-blank, whatever it is. Isn't that what David says in verse 11? In keeping them, there is great reward. That's what it produces in you. But see, all of this is coming to a point that David is driving at. And this means something for us. It actually is telling you, the Christian, something. And it means that we are accountable to God. That's what he's driving at. It means that you are accountable to God. The tone of the whole psalm has sort of changed by the time it gets to verse 11, where David, at the beginning, is praising the Lord who has created the world and everything in it, the galaxies and all of these things are screaming His glory. The heavens declare the praises of God. The word then is better than honey and gold. It's better than fine gold. Transitions to, therefore, be warned. Therefore, be warned. He doesn't, he says he doesn't want to, want to be counted guilty of hidden faults, secret sins. He wants to be held back from presumptuous sins that might have dominion over him. All of the awe that is produced in the first and second stanzas actually produces a healthy fear for his own soul. That's what it boils down to, a fear for his own soul. He realizes that not only has the Lord created the world and everything in it, but that he is morally accountable to this God. He asked this question at the start, who can discern his errors? What person out there can actually discern his errors? David's confessing that he has no way of knowing the extent of his own sinfulness. So he prays that God would declare him innocent of the hidden ones. He calls these secret sins in Psalm 90 verse 8. There's a category in Jewish law for unintentional sins. Sins that were transgressions of the law, but without the person that committed them intending to commit that sin. And so the person, as the law spells out, is still morally accountable for those sins, unintentional though they may be. 
David is asking the rhetorical question, who can discern his errors? He's, he's realizing the disparity between the God who created the stars and then spoke his word and causes his children to grow in wisdom. The disparity between that God and him. What a gap there is. And he's saying, I can't even know the depths of the wickedness of my own heart. His confession is in line with Jeremiah 17, 9, that says the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? But notice it's not just secret sins that David is declaring here. He also prays for presumptuous sins. Other translations call it flagrant sins or willful sins. These are the sins that he very much knows and very much chooses on a day-to-day basis. All of the revelation about God has led him to a deep conviction concerning the sins that he actually chooses day in and day out. And he asks the Lord not to let them reign over him so that the words of his mouth and the meditations of his heart would actually reflect what he knows to be true, what God has revealed to him, what is pleasing to the Lord. If there's one criticism that a church like ours will hear from time to time, it's that we talk about sin a lot. Now, the criticism won't be phrased quite like that or quite that bluntly, but people will notice and they will point out just how much our service revolves around sin, around discussion of sin, around talk of sin, preaching of sin, singing about sin. And typically our service moves, and you'll probably notice three main movements, if you will. First is God's holiness. We sing about that at length for a few songs and And then we move into consideration of our sin, be the second movement. And then at the the end of that, on the backside of that, Christ's sacrifice for us. And there are times where you might feel as though we're just trying to make you feel like a dog. You know, you just come in here and our goal is to just beat you up and then send you on your way and you feel guilty about everything you've ever done and and, and you walk out and, and you sort of are depressed or, or hate life. And there's that moment in the service where we uh, ask you to confess your own sins to the Lord, which takes some getting used to if you're not used to that. That's a different thing, although every church service used to be filled with that many years ago and now all of a sudden is not. The worship services in church in churches like ours don't feel really chipper. Ever notice that? Does it feel very upbeat and chipper? Tend to be a bit more on the serious side? My motivation in organizing the worship service as such is not to make you feel bad. Quite the opposite. It's actually to make you feel truly wonderful. But I don't want the feeling of euphoria to be for something you've done but in realizing what Christ has done for you. I want you to be assured of that when you leave. And I feel like that will make the Christian truly happy. Whereas the sugar candy experience would wane. 
these secret and willful sins that David mentions here are crawling all over our hearts. In and throughout us. Many transgressions that we have committed against the Lord that we don't even think about. We've just done and we've not even given a second thought to. These sins were so unspeakably grievous that God's recourse was to, think about this, slaughter His own Son for them so that He might redeem and save His people from their sin. These same sins that we ignore and we move past, we don't even really think about, God slaughtered His own Son for them. So if you think about this for just a second, God speaks and galaxies come into being. God reveals His Word to His children and we grow in wisdom. And yet when it came to our sin, He slaughtered His own Son that He might save us. That probably means that we should spend even just a little bit of time thinking about them. Confessing them in our worship services. Brothers and sisters, we have so much in our world to distract us. Whatever it is. Things you're about to go back to that are Constant and never-ending distraction. But it's our duty every single day to carry with us Psalm 19. To remember that I am accountable to the God who made me and who put His Word before me. And I cannot claim that I didn't know I had it translated in my language, which so many people around the world do not have, and in history have not had. We have careers, we have school, we have possessions, and these things aren't inherently bad. In fact, they're good when used appropriately. But they're like the lights of a big city. To an extent, we need them. They help us function in society. Yet, the closer we get to them, the less we can see the stars as a reminder of who God is, that we are accountable to Him. So too, the closer we grow to the things of this world, the more prone we are to forget that we are accountable to the God who made us. How great, how great a prayer for the Christian to pray. As this one here at the end of the psalm, keep me back from sin. Don't let it have dominion over me. Let me be innocent of transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my Redeemer. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, I pray that you would give us an affinity, a desire, a love for your word, not as an end in of itself, but that it might lead us to true joy found only in you. Our neglect for your word daily in our lives is shameful. We know it. I pray, Father, that you would give us the heart's desire to change that, to seek after your word daily, that we might grow in our sanctification, that it might produce in us deep and abiding satisfaction for you. All the trinkets and treasures that this world has to offer might pale by comparison and that we might sell all of our possessions to buy this very field of inclusion into your kingdom. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.